0: Hello, my dear friends, this is Rabbi we'll Be coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. It is the middle of Sukkot. It is the intermediate day, the Cholom Hamoed on Sukkot. And we are recording a special mid-surkis podcast. We don't usually do this. We don't usually record a new podcast on Cholom Hamoed. Moed Tov, as we traditionally say, this is the intermediate days. So we have two days at the beginning of the festival of festival days, like Shabbos equivalent, Yom Tov days. And then we have five days in the middle, the Cholamoid, and then we have the end cap, Shemitah Tzaris and Simchas Torah yet to come. And we don't usually record podcasts. My kids are home from school. Traditionally, we like to go on trips, ice skating, going to the beach. But I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist coming to the Torch Center, sneaking in over here for a quick mini episode. I had some thoughts I want to share with you, and I actually do plan on doing another Parsha podcast over the course of this Chol HaMoed, but I wanted to share with you an idea what I said in my sukkah a couple of days ago on day one of circus. So, of course, we are in Houston, Texas, and if Houston is known for one thing, it is known for its heat and humidity, And we were outside in the sukkah, and the heat index was 103 degrees Fahrenheit, and we were roasting. It was sweltering. It was scorching. It was blisteringly hot. We were roasting in the sukkah, and we had a bunch of guests. And I said to them before the meal started, I said, you know, it's really hot, but I'm going to say it to our Torah, I'm going to share with you an insight that's going to change your perspective completely about the heat and the sukkah. When we're done, I promised the audience, when we're done, not only are you going to tolerate the heat, you're going to begin to love the heat and you're going to beg it to get even hotter and more blisteringly brutal. That is my pitch to you. Needless to say the audience was a bit dubious of my claims, but this is what I said to them. And you let me know if you find this to be convincing, if you find this to be persuasive, if this will inspire you to want a really hot sucker on Sukkot, to sit outside in the heat and to enjoy. If you are persuaded, send me an email Rabbi Walby at jima.com. Okay, so what I said to them, I quoted to them an amazing teaching of the Talmud. This is from the book of Avodah Zarah, on page 2A going into 2B, going into 3A and to 3B. So the beginning of the book of Avodah Zarah. Of course, the book of Avodah Zarah deals primarily with the laws of idolatry, Avodah Zarah. But it starts off with a very interesting narrative, a futuristic narrative of what's going to be in the future time when the Almighty is going to begin to dispense reward for all those who obeyed his will. Of course, today, we don't get reward for our mitzvahs. We don't also get immediate punishment for our sins. If we did get immediate reward for our mitzvahs today, that would corrupt the free will. If every time you did a mitzvah, right away, you you know, you found a big satchel full of gold, well, then everyone would do mitzvahs. If, Right away, when you did a sin, when you violated the will of God, you were smitten and struck by God, a bolt of lightning hit you, well then, that would tamper with the free will. And therefore, we don't have reward in our current existence. It's delayed. It comes later. When does it come? It comes after we die. And it also comes in a future time, in the future, in the Messianic era and in the post-Messianic era the world that we call Olam Abba, Resurrection of the Dead, Chis HaMaisen, and that is the subject of this amazing narrative in the Talmud. And we've talked about this Talmud in the past, but we're going to go through it a little bit more intensely and rigorously today to see how beautiful it is to sit in a hot and sweltering sukkah. So Talmud begins that in the future, the Almighty is going to hold a Torah scroll and he is going to make an announcement. And he's going to say, whoever studied the Torah, whoever obeyed the Torah, whoever adhered to the Torah, come and get your just reward. And when everyone sees the reward, the reward, the spiritual reward destined for the righteous in this world, in this future world, is so vast that the most minor tiny smidgen scintilla particle hint of that reward outweighs the combined pleasures of all of humanity, of all of the world, of all of world history. That's what we're told. There's going to be this reward, and the mind is going to begin to dispense it. And the entire world, all of humanity, is going to start salivating and craving this reward, and they're going to all show up to God, we're told in the Talmud, and they're going to say, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm ready for my reward. And the nations are going to come as a big mishmash, and they might going to well organize them into nations, and he is going to begin to inspect them to find out whether or not they are deserving of this reward. And the first nation that's going to enter That's the Romans. And the Romans are going to be interrogated by God. And God's going to say to them, well, what did you do? What are your accomplishments? Where is your Torah study, your Torah adherence, your mitzvah adherence? That would warrant you get reward. So they said to God, well, you know, we did a lot of things. We established marketplaces. We built many bathhouses. We amassed Lots of money, lots of silver, and lots of gold. And we did that for the sole purpose of facilitating that the Jewish people can study Torah. So even though we ourselves didn't study the Torah, but we enabled the nation of Israel to study Torah, and therefore the nation of Israel was only able to study Torah because of us, and therefore we should get some of the reward because we helped Facilitate that, we helped enable that. And the mighty responds, it's not true. You are not telling the truth. You're lying. Because yes, you did indeed establish marketplaces and bathhouses and amass lots of gold and silver. But you didn't do it for the sake of Israel. You didn't do it for the sake of the Jewish people study Torah. You did it for selfish reasons. You wanted a bathhouse because you wanted to go to the bathhouses to become you know, to enjoy him, to luxuriate yourself. And you built marketplaces, you did that because you wanted to have places, houses of ill repute. And the money and the gold, well, that's mine anyhow. And quotes a verse in scripture, Leha Keseth Vilihazov Numashem. The silver and the gold is all God's. And therefore, Romans, I'm sorry, your argument does not qualify. Now, the first interesting takeaway of this Talmud is that the Romans are responding to God. God's saying, okay, whoever studied Torah, whoever engaged in Torah, whoever obeyed, adhered the mitzvot, come to get reward. And the Romans are coming and saying, you know, we, we didn't actually study Torah, but we enabled the Jewish people to study Torah. And therefore we should get reward. And the money says, no, 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 that's not a good argument. Not because the argument itself is not valid, but only because the reason why you did your bathhouses and marketplaces and money amassing, that wasn't to enable the Jewish people to study Torah. But what would be if in the reality, the bathhouses, the money, the marketplaces, was there to facilitate the Torah of the Jewish people? Indeed, the argument on its own is valid. Had the purpose of all the efforts of the Romans been to enable the Jewish people to study Torah, they would have been worthy recipients of the reward. It's only because that the true reason, the true purpose was for selfish reasons, for selfish motivations, and that's why the argument is not valid. So to me, this is the first amazing takeaway The Talmud tells us here. That whoever enables and facilitates and paves the way for the Jewish people to study Torah, even if they're someone like the Romans, they're not Jewish themselves, then that would be an argument that they can use to justify, to claim eternal spiritual reward in the time, in the situation Under the circumstances, in that futuristic time, when the Almighty is dispensing the amazing reward. Next come the Persians, and they make a very similar case. They say, well, we built bridges, and we did wars, and we did conquest, and that was all for the sake of the Jewish people. And again, the Almighty responds to them, no, you did that for yourself. And therefore, you have no claim to the reward that is destined for the righteous, that is destined For the Jewish people who obeyed the Torah, who studied the Torah, who engaged in the Torah, who did the Almighty's will, who were faithful representatives of the Almighty in this world. And again, the same principle is true. Had the Persians built their bridges and embarked on their wars and engaged in their conquest for the sake of Torah, for the sake of the Jewish people, had they done that? in order to facilitate Torah, that would have guaranteed them a portion of that reward in Omaba in that future time. And the Talmud continues, it's a very long piece and it's a very beautiful piece. They said to him, well, you didn't offer us the Torah? And I said, well, I did. Actually, there's the famous Midrash that the money first offered the Torah to every other nation before he he gave it to the Jewish people and they all wanted to inspect it, what's inside of it. We spoke about this in a podcast some time back. They all wanted to evaluate the merits of the Torah before they accepted. And the Jewish people said, and Ishmael, We will do and we will listen. They accepted it, sight unseen, without knowing what was in it. They accepted it because they trusted God. The nations had the opportunity. They were granted the opportunity to accept the Torah and they rejected it. And then everybody says, well, what about the Noahide laws? The Noahide laws, the seven Noahide laws that are universal, were accepted by all of humanity, says the Talmud. Well, those you didn't keep either. So basically you have no claim to this reward, O nations of the land, because you didn't facilitate the Jewish people signing Torah. You didn't even keep the seven Noahide mitzvahs, the seven universal laws that you did accept. But had you facilitated the Jewish people studying, and had you indeed faithfully observed these seven Noahide laws, you would have merited a ticket to Olamaba. You would have merited a ticket to the afterlife, to the eternal abode of pleasure. I always say to Gentiles who reach out, they listen to my podcast, very often they grew up Adherence to a different religion, they did some investigation, and now they they've come to the truth and they know the Torah is true. And there is almost an immediate response. I have to convert. I have to become Jewish. And the truth is: look at this Talmud, and there's other Talmuds along these lines. You don't need to be Jewish to be a good person, you don't need to be Jewish. To be valued and appreciated and loved by God, if you are a righteous Gentile. And again, we have the Talmud here in the book of Otazara, page 3a, it says that explicitly: a righteous Gentile who does faithfully adhere to the seven Nohide laws does merit, Almaba, does merit eternal reward. But the part of this Talmud that is relevant to us on this festival of Sukkot happens. After the entire back and forth, the nations say to God in one final, desperate plea, you know what? We didn't help the nation of Israel study Torah. We didn't even adhere to the seven basic principles accepted by all. But give us another chance. Give us another chance. Give us Torah anew. Now that we've finally seen what is in store for those who adhere to the Torah, Give us a second chance. Give us a second opportunity to do the Torah and to earn its reward. And the mind says, you know what? Agreed. I will give you a chance to do Torah, to do the mitzvahs and to get the reward that you so desperately covet. And then I said, you know what? I'll make it really easy for you. I'm not going to mandate that you observe all of Torah. I'm going to give you one easy mitzvah. It's an easy mitzvah. It's an inexpensive mitzvah. I want you to sit in a sukkah. Go sit in a sukkah. Go make a sukkah. Sit in the sukkah. And you will get the reward. When the nations heard this, this is too good to be true. All I need to do to earn that incredible reward is to sit in a sukkah. That's it. No circumcision. No requirement to eat matzah or to wear tefillin or to recite the Shema or to have a mezuzah on your doorpost or to study Torah every day. One easy mitzvah, inexpensive mitzvah, just the sukkah, that's all you want? Deal. And every Gentile, we're told, every idolater, every Roman, every Persian, every member of humanity amongst the Gentiles is going to run onto the roof, make a mad dash for Home Depot, assemble a sukkah, and sit down in the sukkah. In the hopes, based upon the Almighty's promise, that this is a second chance given to every Gentile who missed on the first chance to earn eternal reward. Here's a second chance. Here's a makeup date. Here's a rain check. Here's another chance to earn that incredible reward. So every makes a sukkah on their roof, and then the Almighty Throws a curveball. The Almighty unsheaths the sun and makes it so sunny and sweltering and scorching and blisteringly hot. And all the people sitting in the sukkah begin to roast and sweat. And it's uncomfortable. And it's painful. And they're in the sukkah and they're like, ah, I'm so hot. I'm so miserable. And they're all going to get out of the sukkah, we're told, in the Talmud. And they're going to be so mad and so full of anger that not only are they going to leave the sukkah, when they leave, they're going to kick the sukkah in disgust. And the might is going say to them, see, it gave you one chance. It gave you one mitzvah, and you lost it. And Talmud concludes, even though the laws of sukkah maintain that if it's very uncomfortable in the sukkah, if it rains in the sukkah, or even if it's very, very hot in the sukkah, you are not required to remain there. You may leave and go to your air-conditioned home. But nevertheless, when a Jew leaves the sukkah, you're sad. I had an opportunity to mitzvah. And now, because of the weather, because of the conditions, I miss the opportunity. And here, this story in this episode, these people are going to leave. They're going to kick it. And that's why they are going to miss this opportunity. Thus concludes this incredible narrative in the Talmud, beginning on 2a in the book of Odazar and ending on 3b at the top. It finishes this narrative. I want to kind of examine this story. Of course, whenever we get to such a teaching in the Talmud, we have to realize that this is an agatic teaching in the Talmud, and therefore the deeper meanings are often going to be masked and covered, and we have to work really hard to try to understand what is the actual message of the Talmud. But one thing we know for sure is that the Almighty, is not toying with these people, with the nations. This is not a joke. God is not teasing them. Indeed, he made a promise, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you an opportunity to acquire the reward of the afterlife with sitting in the sukkah. And indeed, had they fulfilled this mitzvah, it would have resulted in them Receiving Olam receiving the eternal reward of the afterlife. The First question is, wait a minute. How does that work? How can you accomplish the work of a lifetime by doing one mitzvah? We have, how many mitzvahs do we have? We have 613 mitzvahs. And the truth is, even the 613 mitzvahs that we have, they're categories of mitzvahs. And there are millions of mitzvahs. If you were to kind of separate out every deed that is kind of under the rubric of a mitzvah, there's millions. And as Jews, we're obligated in all of them. We don't have coupons to get off the hook. The money expects a lot of us. And here come along these Gentiles. And they're really desperate to get the reward. And they didn't facilitate our Torah-studying observance. They didn't even keep their own seven Noahide mitzvos, And now the money says, you know what? I'll make it easy. One easy mitzvah. It's not even expensive. You know, you want to buy matzah. It's really expensive. You want to buy a and Esrog. Also apropos for our festival that we're in the middle of right now, it's very expensive. I bought a set of and Esrog. It was $120 for essentially a glorified lemon and a stalk. And some branches. And I had to buy several of them for my boys as well. It's an expensive mitzvah. What does it take to sit in a sucker? You have to have four walls, but you don't really need to have four walls. Three, two and a half is enough. It doesn't even matter what the walls are made out of. And then on top, you take some leftover branches, whatever. It's, It's easy, simple, it's cheap. And with this one mitzvah, they could get to where we have to spend a lifetime of mitzvahs trying to get? They fulfill this one easy and cheap, inexpensive mitzvah and get all ba. That's question one. Question number two, the Talmud says, again, that the Almighty gives them a second chance and he goes easy on them and he's not going to tease them and not going to make it difficult for them. But what does he do? He makes it so hot and so unpleasant to sit in the sukkah. It seems like he is teasing them. He's deliberately making it so hot. Why would they want to do that? Make it nice and pleasant. Give a nice cool autumn breeze. Let them enjoy sitting in the sukkah, and let them earn the afterlife. What is happening in this? Talmud. So I want to suggest an approach. The mitzvah of sukkah is a very unusual mitzvah. The Gaon of Vilna famously said that there are only two mitzvahs that encompass us completely, that we get completely immersed and subsumed in. When you do a mitzvah, it's almost like external to you. And even if you eat the matzah, it's something that you're doing, you're consuming it, but it's not something that you're in, you're swallowed up in, you're subsumed in, you're immersed in. There are only two mitzvahs, we're told, that you get completely enveloped in. And that is the mitzvah of being in the land of Israel, of inhabiting and settling the land of Israel, and the sukkah. You walk into the sukkah, are completely enveloped, enclosed, encompassed, subsumed inside the mitzvah. So it's an interesting observation about this mitzvah in general. But what's the lesson? Maybe we can suggest for us to become worthy of olam haba, to become worthy of the afterlife we have to develop ourselves into someone who is meritorious to live and flourish in the afterlife. And our sages explained to us that there are 613 mitzos because there are 613 parts of our body. We each have 248 limbs, 365 sinews, And 248 plus 365 equals 613 because there is one mitzvah corresponding to every part of our body. And the insight here is that with each mitzvah that we do and we perfect, we earn that corresponding body part for all of And if a person has all 613 mitzvahs, you've completely assembled a version of yourself, like a spiritual avatar of yourself. That's worthy of Olam And what this means is that with each mitzvah, we are earning, so to speak, a part of ourselves that is going to be our identity, who we are in the afterlife. But we are doing it piecemeal, one mitzvah at a time. The mitzvah of a sukkah is so special You walk into the sukkah entirely. It's not a mitzvah for your arm, your right arm or your left arm or your right ear or your left ear or your right leg or your left leg or your spleen or your chin. Every single part of you is inside the sukkah. All 613 parts of you partake in this mitzvah. And therefore, there's something about this mitzvah that is encompassing of the entirety of a person's identity. And therefore, with one mitzvah, you, to a certain extent, can earn the entirety of your being, eternal life in the afterlife. In fact, there is the prayer that we say on the second day of Sukkot, we are warned not to make light of the mitzvah of the sukkah, not to devalue or denigrate it or fail to perceive how amazing it is because it is equal to the 613 mitzvos all put together. What a powerful idea. This one mitzvah, the easy, inexpensive mitzvah, is a mitzvah that encompasses all of us, every part of us, and therefore it elevates every part of us, and it achieves the same, so to speak, result of doing every one of the 613 mitzvahs piecemeal. But here's the problem. In order for this to work, in order for one simple, easy, inexpensive mitzvah to actually transform you and make you a citizen worthy of the spiritual world, there has to be sacrifice. There has to be a part of this mitzvah where it's difficult for you and you're doing it because that's what the mighty wants of you. So the mighty made it hot. Why did he make it hot? Because that is the precondition. It has to be unpleasant in order for you to actualize the opportunity the given you here to make up for neglecting all 613. You got to make it up with this one 613 part mitzvah, but it has to be done with self-sacrifice. And therefore, the only way that this could have accomplished the goal is if it was very, very unpleasant. So the Almighty, in his benevolence and kindness to these people, made it roasting, sweltering, brutally hot. And had they remained there, they would have earned eternity by doing a mitzvah that encompasses all of their body, and they would have merited a fast pass to the promised land. They would have earned a golden ticket to the abode of eternal reward. Unfortunately, they were not up to the task, or they will not be up to the task. But the insight that I want to pull away from this final part of this Talmud is that we have... The same opportunity. The Almighty loves us. And you know what? We're all a mitzvah. Bag. We're not perfect. Maybe there's parts of the Sister 13 mitzvahs that we're better at than other parts. We're not perfect. And the might give us a mitzvah every year to sit in the sukkah. It's not a makeup mitzvah. It's not a second chance mitzvah. Once you failed, Every year we have this opportunity. We completely enter the sukkah, surrounded, encompassed, enveloped entirely by the sukkah, every part of us. And if we do this properly, the Talmud here is explicit. If the Gentiles, the idolaters, the Romans, the Persians, people who didn't even keep the seven Noahide laws, meaning they're actually idolaters, they don't have faith. If they were given an opportunity after they've blundered and Done all kinds of terrible things. If they were given an opportunity to sit in the sukkah, and that has the power to make a person worthy of Olam HaBa, all the more so we have that same opportunity. The Almighty loves us, and He's giving us a golden opportunity to earn our eternal world on the cheap. It's inexpensive. And therefore, we're sitting in a roasting hot sukkah. It's hot. I'm sweaty. It's uncomfortable. Why is the meal taking so long? I can't wait to go inside, change my clothing, take off all the sweaty clothing that I'm wearing, and sit in front of the air conditioner and just swallow all that cold goodness. But no, now that we know what the sukkah is all about, it's hot. It's hot if we think about what the Almighty is doing for us, he's giving us an easy opportunity to earn everything that we want in life, to earn eternal reward. Of course, to us, you know, we don't have the benefit that they have in this futuristic Talmud to actually visualize that reward. But we trust that the Almighty is going to keep his word, always has, has never fooled us, and therefore, we are sitting in the sukkah and it's uncomfortable, it's sunny, it's hot. I remember when growing up in the Northeast, it was always cold, frosty. And there was a certain kind of pleasant, nostalgic feeling of like eating a hot bowl of soup in a crisp but frosty sukkah. But in Houston, Texas, or in Florida, or in Mexico, or other places where it's really, really hot, here's the lesson. We shouldn't only tolerate it, we should love it, and wish that it was even hotter. That was the message that I shared with my audience on the first day of circus. And what do you know? We woke up the second day of circus, and there was a cool front. It was like 60 degrees with a crisp, Wind. And I said, I'm so sad. I'm so sad that it's so pleasant because now I lost the opportunity. But then someone told me, you know what? They're happy. So I guess if someone else is happy, then I guess I should be happy as well. But anytime you're in a circle and it's hot, it's uncomfortable, or if it's there's inclement weather, if you're from a different part of the country, of the globe, remember this Talmud. This is one of the only mitzvos. They are completely encircled, enveloped, surrounded by, immersed and subsumed in. And therefore, this is something whose repercussions, whose consequences can change you entirely. And even transform you from being someone who is not worthy at all of Olam Overnight, in one fell swoop, with one easy mitzvah, you could change it all. This mitzvah, is equal to all 613 mitzvos. it can accomplish the objective of all the mitzvos. It might be a bit unpleasant, but you know what? Bring it on. The more difficult, the better. May we all merit to tap into the power of the mitzvah of the sukkah, to be fully immersed and subsumed in the sukkah, and to earn the incredible reward the money has in store for the righteous. My email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com.